All right. We uh, had left off studying arguments uh, arguments for the baptism being a prerequisite uh, to the Lord's table. And of course we spent in previous lectures we spent a good deal of uh, time talking about the conundrum that our pedo-baptist brethren have in that uh, they they have what they call baptism but then they do not have they have pedo-baptism but they don't have, allow the children to uh, break bread or take the Lord's pedo-communion so there's a difficulty there problem of course and we've dealt with that at some length. Again, uh, some of these, some of these Baptist distinctives, that is the overall study we are in, is we're trying to look at Baptist distinctives. Uh, some of these, we, again, we don't claim to be exclusive in. We, we do not believe that we are the only uh, professing evangelical churches that hold to the breaking of bread, communion, Lord's Supper, whichever term you choose to use. But we do have distinctives in our, uh, in our treatment of it. And, uh, some of these, some of these distinctives, that is, uh, the, some of the things that are distinctive to us as, uh, as Baptists is what we've tried to to bring attention to. I did deal with on the last uh, time, in the last lecture, I already dealt with the inherent unique importance of the supper and uh, made a strong case for the importance of baptism and tried to drive home something of that. But I want I, I want to review that. I just want to run through very quickly the points again because I do think they are so important. That the points that we covered on last week, which were actually uh, Dr. Franklin Johnson's uh, lectures, is within Dr. Franklin Johnson's lectures inside the book, the reprint by Jeremiah Bell Jeter on Baptist principles reset. Those uh, uh, those are important enough. I want to say, I just want to run through those again very quickly. He said, I present the Lord's Supper as I have presented baptism as a ceremony, as a ceremony, but not a mere ceremony, as an emblem, but not a mere emblem. Between these uh, inadequate views of sacram sacramen sacramentarianism, such I abhor, there is a wide continent of rich truth that is between these two opposing that of being a 
a mere ceremony and being a real ceremony, being a mere emblem, being a real emblem. He says there's a great gulf between the two things, wide enough that he doesn't want to overlook them. I therefore present the Lord's Supper as containing elements of spiritual truth and divine and power similar to those which I found in baptism. And then he lists them. And this is what I want to give you this listing again. He said uh, that the breaking of bread, the communion of the Lord's Supper, in number one, it preaches the cross. Now, after the lecture last week, Brother John and Brother Luke, some of you gentlemen had comments, had much to say, and, uh, and very, very good emphasizing uh, this matter, how that the preach the 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 breaking of bread preaches the cross. It presents the gospel, presents the gospel to the world. Uh, we did in uh, in Ireland was the first time that I even encountered the doctrine of closed communion, and we not close closed. And the church there in Letterkenny, I think specifically. I'm not mistaken, they practiced close communion, but even in close communion, uh, there were occasions where there would be unbelievers in those services. Uh, and the church did not, and, and I would not, I would not discourage, I have never discouraged anyone from coming and being in our midst when we break bread together. I, I explained to them why they can't participate, but I certainly, even a sinner, an unconverted sinner, a sinner who makes no professional faith, I would not discourage them at all from being present to view the body of Christ taking communion together. Because it is in this thing that, that the gospel is presented in all of its purity. The gospel surely is presented in this break of bread. So he says, number one, it's, it's so important. Breaking bread is so important because it preaches the cross. Number two, it offers to the believer a touching memorial of the entire person and work of Christ, and especially his sacrificial atonement. So it, it offers us together an opportunity preeminently to, to remember the Lord's, what it took for us to be redeemed. Thirdly, it is a symbol of God's covenant with his people. This is, he said, my blood in the new covenant. It is a symbol. And I didn't go into it. <coughs> I, I, I didn't make any preparation to go into it in my notes, but uh, certainly some of you can just, as it were, shoot from the hip and probably bring us a good lecture on, on the importance of symbols and emblems for the people of God. We are a dull people. We are dull. And uh, the Lord, I, I, 
I know I've mentioned this before, but I remember in all the old Southern Baptist churches where I grew up, the table, the communion table sat up front, always sat up front, big, large table, and engraved in the front of it was the Lord's words, this do in remembrance of me. And we we are prone to forget, are we not? We are such so forgetful. And and we know a thing, and yet it just it just somehow slips out of our uh, present thinking so quickly, so easily. Even the most profound things, profound truths, slip away from us. And not just the Lord's supper, but uh, through the centuries, the Lord, or through the through the ages of His dealings with His people, the Lord has given symbols, even. The rainbow in the sky is a reminder. He put it there and he said, let this ever be a reminder to you that I will never destroy the earth again by water. So the Lord knows that in our fallen condition, we need reminders. We need them. We need them. And so this this supper is is one of those things he has given to remind us. And then he says, number three, it is a symbol of God's covenant with his people. Number four, it presents Christ as the nourishment and life of the soul. Eat, drink. So it, it sets forward the importance of the believer being in continued Taking, partaking of the Lord. Not of the supper, per se. Not, not of the emblem, but of the reality. Partaking of Christ. But this meal does remind us of that importance. The importance of partaking Christ. It's a prediction. Number five, it is a prediction of the second coming. I'm having people (laughs) more and more because of what's going on with Israel. I'm having more and more people ask me, what do you think about what's happening in Israel? Is the Lord coming? Well, the Lord is coming. It makes no matter what's happening in Israel. And he could come any second, quite without regard to what's happening in Israel. It's altogether on his schedule. Only the Lord knows when he will come. Only the Lord knows. But this supper is given to us to remind us that he is coming. <laughs> and and it is a prediction of that. The very partaking of it is a prediction. The number six, it is a prediction of our future glory with Christ. Because he says in the formula, uh, in the text of it, in the narrative of it, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there is the prediction here of our future glory, all wrapped up in this meal. And then finally, number seven, he says it is a symbol of the fraternal unity 
of those who partake in it. A symbol of the fraternal unity. The scripture says we who are many are one bread, one body, for we partake of the one bread. This ordinance therefore contains a precious freightage of Christian truth. All of these things wrapped up. Great precious freightage wrapped up in this in this this meal. But then it's also important because of what Johnson in his lecture calls the real presence of Christ in it. Page 208 of the work, the particular work that I'm reading from, <clears throat> he says this, and we would be, we, we would, as Baptists, we would be a little leery and, and cautionary when we start talking about real presence of Christ. But listen to his, uh, his understanding. He said, the Baptist who rejects with loathing the doctrine of the physical presence of Christ in the supper knows of his spiritual presence. And that, after all, is the only real presence for which he is concerned. So when we speak of the real presence of Christ, we're not speaking as the transubstantialists who uh, uh, says that Christ is, that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ and he is really present physically in those elements. We don't believe that. Uh, but we do believe that there is a real presence of Christ in that supper it is it is spiritual. He says there are two kinds of spiritual presence of Christ uh, of which the scriptures speak. First, there is his omnipresence <clears throat> as God. His eminence in his universe so that he is in every place even where we forget him and see him not. So there is just the presence of Christ in his, in the sense of his omnipresence as God. He is everywhere. But then there is what he calls, and I love this expression, he uses the expression, there is the presence of manifestation. The presence of manifestation. This is different from just his universal omnipresence. This is a presence of his manifestation, manifesting himself. He is everywhere, says Johnson, but often, like Jacob, we awake from some carnal slumber and say, <clears throat> like Jacob, Surely Jehovah is in this place, and I knew it not. I have had the rare and long ago now 
privilege to be in a place a time or two where I believe that the Lord chose sovereignly to manifest his own presence. He was very, very present in a sense that he is not everywhere, but rather in the sense that he has chosen to manifest his unique presence there. And that is a thing, that is a thing to experience. He says that at other times he is so manifest that our hearts, to use the words of scripture, burn within us. It is for this presence of manifestation that we pray when we ask him to be with us. It is this that he has promised his assembled people where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It is this that this disciple is uh, conscious at the Lord's Supper when he says, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, this, this manifest presence. When the hymn writer wrote those words, it was this manifest, this presence of manifestation that he was thinking of. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. The disciple therefore need only consult his own experience to find an answer to those who plead for unrestricted communion on the ground that the Lord's Supper is a mere club dinner, a merely daily meal, or a mere vague emblem. These are things that Johnson has already in his writing condemned, looking on the Lord's Supper as a vague emblem, <clears throat> as a daily, regular daily meal, or as he said, some do believe, and I didn't cover it, you can read it for yourself, some believe that it is in fact unique, but that it is only unique in that it is a very special club dinner for very special friends. And he says, I deny all of that. I deny all of that as valid. And I make a case for the fact of this, this break, this communion service is a, is, is unique and special because of his very real presence and that being a presence of manifestation that he has drawn near and I can assure you as he says the disciple has only to look at his own experience if you have ever been where he has drawn near you will not need instruction as to what that is it is unique experience and it ought to be our experience every time we come to the Lord's table there should be a very real sense of his manifest presence and if not we've either hindered him by our sin or we're observing the thing wrongly taking it wrongly and we try to guard against those things. So there is the argument 
from the very real presence of Christ. And then, of course, he goes on. I'm not going to cover them. You can read them for yourselves. Uh, there are other, there's, there's much more that he, that Johnson gives, uh, in this, in this work, in these lectures, uh, concerning that same argument. But then there's an argument much later on, uh, he says there's an argument from general understanding of Christians, and there's an argument, uh, let me see. From the general understanding of Christians, I was trying to see how many other arguments he brings. He brings, uh, he brings a great deal of arguments, but we're, we're, I'm not interested in them all. I do want to point out to you that the argument, there's an argument from the proper Christian love. Not sentimentality, not sentimentality, but a proper Christian love. These are arguments for the preeminence of the Lord's Supper, the importance of the Lord's Supper. I give you this argument only for today. Page 222, if you have the same volume that I'm using, he has this argument from a proper Christian love. He says, is there then a conflict between love for Christ and a proper love for his people? There should be none. Nor should there ever be a conflict between Christian love and Christian duty. But there is a short-sighted love which may be brought into conflict with the best and holiest sentiments of the soul and the best and holiest determinations of the will. Short-sighted love in a mother may bring her into violent conflict with the dictates of a wise love, of good sense, of duty. It may lead to the injury of the child. Short-sighted love always works mischief. No love which acts at variance with reason is far-sighted or is, wor is worthy of the name by which it calls itself. Now, a prudent love for the Christian world will lead the Baptist to see what a calamity infant christening is and how a great a blessing the restoration of baptism would be. Now, this seems like a stretch at first, but when you follow his line of argumentation, he's making an argument for the fact that a, of a true biblical baptism, that is the baptism of an actual professing professor, someone who can profess Christ and own him publicly, the, the argument is for a true a baptism being a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. And he is saying it has to do with a proper love for his people requirement of that. In proportion to his wise love for his fellow Christians will be his longing to give them this added power. He will recall from any course which could hinder him from bestowing it upon them. How great the blessings would be 
how great the blessings would be the Baptist will see if he will pause a moment to consider the evils of infant christening. All right? Infant christening is an evil which he says we as Baptists will not have it and it's because of our Christian love. It's not a love for other Christians to, indul to indulge this thing, to allow for it. It's not a love. You know, and some make the argument. They say, well, if you really love people, you wouldn't restrict them. Like, no, Christian love dictates that we will restrict them, that we will see the necessity of the prerequisite of baptism. Dr. Alva Hovey, under the following heads, has presented these arguments about the evils of infant christening. Number one, says Hovey, instant, uh, infant christening takes away from the Christian ordinance the larger part of its meaning by making it no longer a confession of faith, but on one hand, a regenerating rite, and on the other, a mere vague ceremony. And still further, by altering its form from immersion to sprinkling, thus divesting it of its power to preach Christ buried and resurrected. So, Hovey, whom Johnson is quoting, Hovey says that it is not a matter, it is not Christian love to indulge this infant baptizing and accept that as a prerequisite for the Lord's table because because infant baptizing turns the thing into a mere ceremony if not a regenerating rite and secondly infant christening ascribes to the ordinance an imaginary virtue keeps alive in the greatest denominations the fatal delusion of baptismal regeneration and in some others a vague conviction that God will be more favorable to infants which have been baptized if they should die. So infant christening, says Hovey, is keeping alive this, this terrible, fatal, he calls it, fatal delusion that uh, of baptismal regeneration. Thirdly, infant christening mars the constitution of the church by introducing unconverted persons into it. I can testify to you of that. Whatever, whoever else, whatever else, I for one, I can stand and testify to you of that. We know of whole churches, every one of us do. I know of whole churches within very close proximity to this building right now. Whole churches who are full of people who are convinced that they are Christians, whom their lives and actions demonstrate irrefutably they are not Christians, and yet they are convinced that they are because of infant baptism. And there is no Christian love, is the point Johnson is making, 
There is no Christian love in accepting that. There is no Christian love for others when we just lay down our conviction and accept them to the breaking of bread table with us without real baptism. Number four, he says, infant christening facilitates the union of church and state with all of its terrible results. I thought about asking Brother John, who would be eminently qualified, to prepare us a lecture on that specific point, how infant baptism, the doctrine of infant baptism, ties it in with the matter of 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 blending church and state. Uh, Anglicanism, Anglicanism stands <laughs> as a as a monumental testimony to that fact that church and state become, of course, Romanism does as well, but even Anglicanism, for that matter, Presbyterianism, ism has demonstrated in the past this fact that infant baptism marries church and state. Baptists stand uniquely, uh, I, I, might I say preeminently, against that. It was Baptist influence that brought about at least in the civil realm, separation of church and state. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a distinctive we'll get to later in our study. But I'm just, he's saying right now, Hobie is saying that infant christening facility, didn't say it necessarily directly causes it, but it certainly facilitates the uh, union between church and state. It might be great if we could convince Brother John to, to bring us just a little word on that matter, uh, a little lecture on on that matter. Because many of us, many of us as Americans, not necessarily because we're Baptists, but because we're American, and we have inherited more or less a doctrine of separation of church and state that we sometimes miss throughout history how this thing has worked. It has been a monstrosity. And Johnson makes the point by quoting Hobie on this, Johnson is making the point that you're no friend to the Christian. You're, you're, no, friend, you're no Christian friend if you'll allow this thing to exist. And then number five, Infant christening divides the followers of Christ. Now, of course, those who are pedo-baptists would blame us for that. They would say, we're the reason there's no unity. <laughs> but uh, Hobie says the mission to which the Baptist denomination is called is high and holy. The happiness and the success of the Christian world are bound up with it. A prudent love, a far-sighted love, would lead a Baptist to firm fidelity to the truth committed to it. 
And we've already established that in previous lectures. We've established in previous lectures that the scriptures, the scriptures, if that's going to be our, our uh, source, the scriptures give no countenance to this thing. The scriptures give no countenance to any baptism that is not the result of repentance and faith. So if that is not baptism, then the Christian is not exercising any Christian love by allowing for it. That's the point that Johnson is trying to make. But, of course, he's quoting, he's using uh, Hovey's uh, list of arguments as to what's wrong with the infant baptizing. It divides the followers of Christ. And may I just say what it divides them into? It divides them into those who are unrelenting in their commitment to sola scriptura and those who are willing to use the scripture in combination with ancient fathers, traditions of men, or whatever else you want to name. There are these two categories of people. Those of us who are strictly draw our faith and practice from the scriptures, we cannot allow it. And only those who are willing to incorporate other teachings will allow it. And we as Baptists hold this distinctive that it is not an exercise of Christian love for other Christians to allow this thing. Okay? That's his argument. That is his argument. That's the essence of his argument. It's not Christian love that allows these things. Does that make sense? It's a reasonable argument. And of course he gets off into Hobie's uh, treatment of it to, uh, at, at, a, at a good bit of further, uh, further discussion of it. So this is the, uh, now as I say, uh, Johnson actually, and you can read the whole chapter for yourself, Johnson uh, actually has other arguments that he brings, but these were the three that I felt were weighty. Uh, and I wanted to bring arguments for why we hold true baptism, biblical baptism, as a prerequisite to taking the Lord's table. These are what I thought were the strongest arguments uh, that Johnson brought. All right, we'll take up again. We'll leave it there. Some of you would like to make a comment. Or question on this specific lecture. In the introduction to our preprint of Dr. Baldwin's baptism, I took occasion to quote uh, Dr. George I. I. Uh, in his in his introduction to the American Baptist Publication Society reprint of Dr. Gill's work in the Baptism of the Party and so on so forth, done in 1851. He had these words to say on this.
discussion. Must there not be some latent defect, some insidious weakness in the very heart of Protestantism itself to render possible such an result? Now, the result, conditionally speaking, is Dr. Baldwin's argument that the baptism of unregenerate persons leads inevitably to a graceless church. Uh huh. So, this result, he says, must be some latent defect. And he says, we firmly believe there is. And we are equally confident we know what it is. <laughs> the churches have retained the practice of infant baptism. If its upholders do not regard it as the nearest nullity, yeah, yeah. Nearest nullity, a right as vapid and meaningless as it is unscriptural, they must ascribe to it some mysterious efficacy, some hidden and magical power by which it influences the spiritual state of its recipients and brings them under moral relations different from those of others. Accordingly, we find that wherever it is left to unfold itself freely, that is, infant baptism, mm -hmm. wherever it is left to unfold itself freely, wherever it is not shorn of its natural proportions and accompaniments by contact with the advocates of primitive truth and order, mm -hmm. it always appears in Connection with baptismal regeneration, infant church membership, and sacramental holiness. Mm -hmm. Sacramental holiness. Not only a recap for the hearers, maybe you could restate the relationship suggested here to the present subject. There's a lot of talk about baptism this class and last class that we have reported to be uh, we've moved on the subject of the Lord's Supper. So how does all this relate? Well, that it relates in that when he set out, the first lecture I set out was to show uh, it. the specific subject related is the prerequisite of baptism for taking the Lord's Supper. And in the process of making or bringing lectures on that subject, the prerequisite of baptism for the Lord's Supper, it, it's, it's uh, unavoidable that you're going to recover some of the ground of baptism itself, why the importance of baptism itself and that the shadow, if you erect that as a, a statue, let's say, just to use an illustration, if you erect the importance of baptism as a statue, the shadow is going to cast itself over onto this subject of the Lord's Supper. It's, a, it's unavoidable that the Lord's Supper is going to be 
your view and your exercise of the Lord's Supper will be tinted by your view of baptism. So we've recovered some ground, some of the ground pertaining to the importance of baptism in connecting it to why we believe it is a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. So that, that goes back and covers that ground, as you say, just as an overall connection is the word used. Connection between the two is we're talking about the Lord's Supper. But what we're talking about first in it was the prerequisite of baptism for the Lord's Supper. And really, I suppose you'd say the Paedo-Baptists don't hold to that because they have, uh, by and large, because they have baptized members, as he just read, but they're not allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. But we hold to the prerequisite of the baptism, but we're talking about a biblical baptism that has a profession and a testimony. So the prerequisite of baptism for the Lord's Supper. And you'll have people, I mean, you'll run, just out in our daily lives, we'll run into people who uh, would ask. You, you, you can find people who will ask, well, you know, why can't we come and take the Lord's Supper with you? And you, and you, if, even if you were practiced open communion, I assume you would ask if they've been baptized. And if they haven't, the modern Christian, and I'm putting that in air quotes, the modern Christian doesn't understand why that would be important. Why, why would baptism have anything to do with whether or not I can take the Lord's Supper? I can take the Lord's Supper with anybody, they would say. Well, no, we hold as Baptists a prerequisite of baptism. And the importance of that, then, it's the importance of that baptism that casts its shadow onto the Lord's Supper. Certainly we don't want to lose that connection. Uh, it would be wonderful, John, if you could prepare for us a, a brief word, some word, because most of us, not having a great historical knowledge, Many of us have missed the connection between the two things. Uh, I can just say by way of Brother John can lay out for us specifically how that, how that correlation works and, and what it has done over the centuries. But I can tell you from living in a Roman Catholic country, uh, that's a country that preeminently practices pedo-baptism. I can tell you, having lived there back in the day when it really was a Catholic country, that 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 pedo baptism dictates the rule of that church, and that church, the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, ruled everything. Uh, some American Catholics have have recall when they've heard me say what I'm fixing to say now, but I was there, I lived there. In any village in Ireland at that time, any village, town, city, 
metropolis, you name it. The local parish priest was the unelected but unchallenged head of the school, head of the water department, the government. I mean, there was no function in society of which the local parish priest was not the unchallenged head of it. Period. That's just how it worked. Well, of course, pedo-baptism is at the root of that because all the citizenry were baptized into that church and made members of it. So whoever's the hierarchy of that church is the default hierarchy of everything in the culture. That's just how it works. And as I say, I'm only giving it to you from personal experience, my experience of it. John could give you more of the technical explanation of it all, and uh, and it would be good if, if he would do that for us. But uh, I can tell you that it ties, the pedo-baptism feeds, feeds into a church state, state church, sorry, not church state, a state church uh, view of, of philosophy, as was mentioned. All right, let's pray together and then we'll